But the constitution of the kingdom or the church is Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. And a lot of what we're going to discuss today, if you understand that when Jesus came to the earth, the first message he preaches is Matthew 5. There should be some kind of weight and gravity and attention given to. But if you understand that literally what he was doing is he was laying out Christianity 101. That this is not for the mature, this is not for the advanced, this is not, this is like Christianity 101. If you want to know the way of the kingdom, Matthew 5. Jesus lays it out just in, in simplicity and in purity. And ultimately, I also want to say Matthew 5 is how we measure, number one, personal development and even our effectiveness as a ministry. If you look, I don't know how many of you looked very closely at Matthew 5, but it is a piercing, searing, convicting outline of true Christianity. And I'm just going to say, when I read Matthew 5, it's obviously, it's the constitution of the kingdom, but it's completely opposite to the value systems of men. It's offensive almost. I mean, he starts out, his first statement is, blessed are the poor in spirit. And everything within our American culture despises poverty, despises need, despises that we're not self-sufficient, have it all together. I got my program, I got my five-year plan, I got my way to execute it. But instead, he's outrightly saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. See, let's just be honest. In American culture and society, we all put on the face of, I've got it together, my family's got it together, my finances are there. I'm doing it. I'm on the rat race, and I'm somehow succeeding. Even in church culture, who comes together going, I'm poor in spirit? I mean, really, the profession is, how are you? Good, how are you? I mean, it's always on the plane of, I'm prosperous, I'm successful, I got it all together, instead of on the side of just saying, you know what? I willingly acknowledge my poverty. Because that is where the kingdom of God can be birthed, is in the acknowledgement of our need for him. Mm-hmm. You know, I love what Mike Bickle says, actually. I'm going to read it to you. I typed it down here because I do love it so much. <coughs> he says about Matthew 5, <coughs> he says, Ministry impact is not measured by the size of the crowds that you gather or by the size of the offerings that you take. But the degree to which those we are ministering to are walking out the values of Matthew 5. Matthew 5. And we're going to look at that. Because Matthew 5, it's just... Come on, babe. Is there a seat next to Chris? There's one right here. There you go. Um, I mean, I'll read that to you again. Because <laughs> this just like flies completely in the face of understanding what is success. Even as far as a ministry is concerned, and, you know, on the front end, I'm just going to read you. Ministry impact is not measured by the size of crowds or by the size of personal offerings, but, the de- but to the degree to which those that we minister to are walking out the, ma- of the values of Matthew 5. That's good. And this good. is what I want you to understand on the front end. Our heart as people, when we set out to start a church, I know that there's been a few people that have made the comment of things like, you guys could grow a mega church between like the college population and your gifting. Honestly, we don't have any kind of ambition to grow a mega church. And this is why I love his, his quote of Matthew 5. If I could get a handful of people wrestling to walk out with integrity and sincerity, the purity of the gospel, 
that that's what I'm hungry for. I'm going to say this. I have been involved with mega churches, big ministries, even throughout this region and beyond. I have sat with pastors and apostolic leaders of entire movements in our nation. And you know what they've said to me? Is there's multitudes gathering, but our young adults are ensnared in fornication. The people sitting in our congregation have themselves presently been having abortions. They go through the list of marriages that are broken by pornography, by divorce. The fact of the matter is there's multitudes gathered there. But like Mike says, it is not the measure of success in a ministry. And it's not even the measure of success for us as people if we can gather numbers. The measure of success is, is that are we walking and living Matthew 5? Is Matthew 5 the reality and the litmus test for our life? And honestly, I believe if we can gather a handful of people, 5, 10, 15, 20, whatever it may be, but if we're wrestling for integrity and sincerity in the place of walking out the word, (laughs) beyond the place of hearing the word but being doers of the word, if we're wrestling for the reality of Matthew 5, I believe that that could turn an entire city upside down. I believe that we could actually see the reality of the inbreak of revival in a generation. We could see the inbreak of the power of God. It is very clearly biblically delineated that the eye of the Lord searches all of the earth in search of a heart that is wholly his, perfectly towards him, that he might show himself strong on their behalf. See, oftentimes what we do with our church structure and our principles is we get it completely backwards. We want the Lord to show himself strong, and we're offended and can't figure out why he's not showing himself strong. We, we want to start with B instead of looking at A. He searches all of the, uh, the earth for a heart that is fully his, that he's after the issues of the heart. See, oftentimes you sit, we sit in American culture... And we quote the blessings of prosperity without looking at the, the preceding passages of scripture that said, if you follow me with all of you, all of Deuteronomy that everybody can quote off the top of it, you're the head, you're not the tail, you're the blah, 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 blah. you know, you hear it, but they forgot to say there was, there was literally conditions that the Lord said, basically, if you align yourself in this way, you're aligning yourself for blessing, so it'll be the natural outgrowth. You won't have to strive for it. You won't have to look for the remedy. It will be the natural fruit of a life that is aligned rightly before God, and that then you'll be the head and not the tail. It's those places, but oftentimes we're claiming those promises. It's kind of like if I'm married to my husband, completely unfaithful, do not in any way adhere to our marital vows, but yet I want all the blessings of being married to him. I want his paycheck to go into my account, thank you. I want to drive a car that he pays for. I want, to, I want all of the blessings of what it looks like legally to be married to you, but yet I don't want to walk in the place of covenant. That's good. And that's exactly what the Church of America, we export a gospel that says, you can have X, Y, Z, and this is the results, this is what it's supposed to look like, it says it right there in the Bible, but yet we forget to say, oh, but there's something called covenant. And God calls us to walk in covenant. And the beauty of covenant. And really, honestly, if you look at Matthew 5, it, it right there for us. Even like I said, where, where the passage of scripture in Deuteronomy says that the eyes of the Lord searches all of the earth, searching for a heart. 
the issue is always the matter of the heart. If, if you look at Matthew 5, which, um, let me just, um, really quickly. If you look at Matthew 5, like, we're not going to go into great detail today with Matthew 5. It's not, like, the whole crux of what we're discussing. But the two things in, in 5, 17 through 20, the issue that's highlighted is righteousness. And he goes after the heart. In that passage, I love Matthew 5 so much. Because really in our generation, I'm going to say this, the two things that I think are the most dangerous and detrimental to Christianity here, but also overseas, is number one, the false prosperity message. I do believe God prospers us. I, I believe it. But it's not for our own accumulation of wealth and success. It's for us to be a blessing to others. I believe he wants to prosper us so we can feed the poor, so we can take care of orphans. But I think the prosperity message of what I can acquire for myself, um, it's, I've even talked to people that are leaders in third world countries trying to develop... Um, plants of bases of church plants and things like that and they have literally said the prosperity message has been the most dangerous thing to us because who wants to be a missionary when you can hear the prosperity message of all that you can acquire and attain the more you have the harder it is to go the more you have the harder it is to let go of and hear me, I don't despise wealth at all. I believe the Lord wants to give us wealth so that we can give it. I, I'm all about it. I believe the Lord wants to entrust it to us. Um, but the issue of the heart, he, he addresses the issue of righteousness. And really what he goes after in verse 17, he said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. And he goes on to talk about the Pharisees. He goes on basically, he's rebuking the Pharisees. He's rebuking them because they adhere to the law. They do everything. They're fasting. They're praying. They know the scripture like nobody's business. They know it inside and out. But yet he actually says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, that you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. That's crazy. Who preaches that? Unless your righteousness... I mean, they did it all according to the law. But what he was going after is here are the scribes and the Pharisees, and they can't even acknowledge the Messiah in their midst. So what is it all unto? What is all the fasting? What is all the rituals? Honoring the Sabbath? All the scriptural study? Them being able to teach the law? What is it unto if the Messiah stands? The the written word is alive, made flesh in front of them, and they can't identify it. But the crazier thing is he goes on after this literally to say, I did not come to destroy the law of the prophets, the Old Testament. See, this is the second thing, the prosperity message, but also this false teaching of lawlessness, that there's somehow a grace. I'm totally for the grace of God. It's why I stand here today. Thank you, Jesus. It's by grace. But it's a grace that empowers and it's a grace that enables us to pursue wholeheartedness. Amen. Not a grace that excuses compromise or, or a cover-up for half-heartedness. Yeah. It's a grace that enables you when you're convicted of your sin. See, the, there is yet to be restored a beauty for the word conviction. Because all that I have to say is that those that despise the word conviction, it's because they've actually only experienced the condemnation of man. When you've experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit, it is the most empowering 
life-giving thing because you do not feel disabled, condemned, or somehow overwhelmed. In the place of conviction, there's a new release of grace and you feel that anointing upon your heart. He does not convict you to disable you as if you cannot run. He convicts you to give a vision of where he desires you to be. That's the difference between the condemnation of man and the conviction of God. It's empowering and enabling. And the, the craziest thing is, is that I believe is because there's such a false teaching of grace in our generation, there has just been permeated throughout the, the church body, specifically in young adults. It is the most crippling gospel to preach. Because ultimately what it all comes down to is compromise kills. Com- and you know, I, I, so some of you here study science. I mean, on a very, very basic level, if you take a substance that is pure that it's, it's completely and totally one substance, and you add a substance to it, you dilute it. There's a dilution that takes place, and there's also a mixture that takes place, and it's no longer, I mean, this is like a very tangible, this is the, an, an understanding of things that are spiritual that are very much in the natural. The same is true of our heart, is that our heart was intended to be Holy, committed, devoted, undefiled, no mixture. And then when you add something to it that is a foreign substance, a foreign belief system, a wrong mentality, compromise, open the door to unbelief, gossip, whatever it may be, you are altering the original state of what that substance, your heart, was intended to be. It's mixture and it dilutes it. That's the very essence of compromise. You're compromising the integrity of the substance because it's been diluted. And that is even the essence of compromise in our heart and in our spirit is that we have been diluted by something and therefore even the strength of our heart, the strength of our spirit gets diluted with compromise. It's the very same as it is in the natural with substances. But I absolutely love it here in Matthew when he addresses that I did not come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill it. And basically what he's saying is the law was given in the Old Testament and it does not mean that we do not walk according to it. Actually, he goes on to say, he describes the issues of the heart, the issues of murder, the issues of anger, the issues of adultery in the, in the Old Testament. It was if you committed the act in the New Testament, it's if you look on a woman. He goes through the issues of the heart and basically says the standard is actually... Higher, sorry to tell you, but it's because we now have the indwelling Holy Spirit and that the blood of Jesus that covers and enables us to walk in the fulfillment of the law that was spoken. And then, as I quoted earlier, uh, verse 20, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So he really goes hard after righteousness there. And secondly, he goes hard after the issue of love. (coughs) Oh, it's just, it's crazy to me. So he goes through, the three basic things that he goes through is that if you're going to go take communion and you know that your brother has ought in his heart towards you, that you do not go take communion, but you go to reconcile with that brother. There is such a place of even going after issues of the heart like that See, the eyes of man will never see if you're harboring anger and unforgiveness. No one would ever know that. 
But that's exactly what he's delineating, is that it's that which the eyes of God see. Even as I was saying in the very the very beginning, so much in our culture, in our society, even in ministry and Christianity, is about outward appearance. And that's what it's become. And that's what has been valued. But ultimately, what he's going after is the issues of the heart. Even when he delineates, he says in the Old Testament, if you committed adultery, in the New Testament, if you look upon a woman to lust, that's an issue of the heart that no one would ever see. You could never be judged or accused or condemned or nothing, nothing. But it's what the eyes of God only see. And that's, that's really what he's bringing all of this down to, is the issues of the heart. And, you know, I remember one time there was a prophet that was coming to our church and I remember somebody saying, don't you get so nervous when the prophets come because you just never know what they're going to say to you? And I remember like looking at them kind of confused. I'm like, don't they know that God sees all? Like, I, I, I was kind of like going, hold on one second. And I, I for a moment was sincerely confused. I was like, what are you worried they're going to say? Like, I was kind of like, God knows your heart. And, I, and honestly, my thought at that time was, even if there's an area of struggle in my life, God knows I am so after him. That's what he sees. That's what the prophet's going to see. Like, I'm after God with everything within me. And so I remember asking them, I said, what exactly are you concerned? And then they kind of shared. And I just looked at them and I said, so my question to you would be, you should probably be in fear and trembling before God if that issue is in your life and not be so concerned that a prophet's going to point it out. The fact of the matter is if there's something that we're afraid that the eyes of man will see, if there's something that we fear would be exposed or that, you know, we get all creeped out, like, what does that person see in me? Well, it's probably because it's something that shouldn't be and you should probably get rid of. <laughs> like, it's not something you should be hiring, hiding, or excusing. But, like, before an all-gracious, merciful God, lay it barren. I love, love, love. It was... um in the year 2000, I was involved with a call with Lou. I was exactly 22 years old. And I can remember I was supposed to do the Nazarite section. And I mean, at that point, I mean, love the Nazarite message. But at that time, it was a, very much an anomaly. Not a lot of people were preaching it. And I remember kind of thinking, like, okay, the standard to do, like, the Nazarite section of the call DC. I remember feeling a little overwhelmed by that, going, like, am I a Nazarite? Am I, like, what am I, you know, like, I was just kind of like, what's going on? I remember him sitting down. I mean, it's kind of comical because the calls are so big and, like, the programs are huge now. But at that point in time, it was, like, a group of 15 of us that gathered on the Washington Mall. And he basically went over the program and was writing it on a piece of paper. <laughs> like, it was just so unorganized. But I remember him looking, and he said, he said, the people that I have here today with me, he said, I just want to say, he said, I, I know you're probably not sinless. I know there's probably areas of struggle in your life. And he said, and you may, even in the past week or past month, may have struggled. And he said, but I just want to say to you, he said, it's about the bent of your heart. Wow. It's the bent of your heart. You're not defined by your present day struggle. Come on. You are not judged. You are not. And you have to understand, even in the eyes of God, you know, we sometimes think he's like all concerned, stressed out, worried over like, yeah, like he, 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 he's passionate about righteousness. We obviously see that in Matthew 5. He's like going after anger in your heart towards your brother. Like he's saying you actually can't enter the kingdom of heaven, crazy stuff. But the crazy thing is, is that when we understand that it's the issue of the heart, that he so knows our heart, if the cry of our heart is for wholeheartedness, 
He is a jealous, faithful God that he's going to see us all the way to the other side of that area of struggle. As long as we're saying, God, I'm weak, I'm dark, I don't have it together, but I want to be wholehearted. That's what he looks at. He looks at the yes, and he looks at the place where we're, we're after him, even though we're not walking in perfection. And that's the crazy thing is perfection is not defined by all of your outward circumstances and all of your categories in your soul all being aligned and all your inner healing junk being together. Perfection is defined by, and this is even what you can pray before the Lord, I want a heart that is perfectly towards you. A heart that is perfectly towards you. And a heart that is perfectly towards him, he defines as a perfect heart. That every place in me desires to be conformed to your will, to your purposes, to your law, to your truth. I mean, that is what he's after. You look at the life of David. The dude did not have his stuff together. I mean, we're talking even Old Testament here. Like, he should have been killed for most of the stuff that he did. I mean, he just did not get that together. But if you look at his his prayer of repentance, creating me a clean heart, oh God. You know, my favorite part of that when David prayed was he said, renew a steadfast spirit. A steadfast. He said, teach me your law, and then I'll go and teach transgressors your way. His heart was after him. He, it was the place of repentance. And I guarantee you, I remember in high school I had to teach a, a chapel. And so I remember I was like 16 years old, and I'm like, what do I teach to a bunch, like all my peers? And I, I was kind of a little wigged out by it. And I remember the Lord said to me, he said, Bethany, if they, if they have an understanding of a life of repentance, if they live a life of repentance, I can do anything with that. And this is really what I believe. is It's not that perverted grace of, like, go out and sin and then just ask for forgiveness. Like that, not crazy. I mean, let's just be honest. We're all right here. We're all talking about the right posture of repentance, the right posture of not abusing the grace of God. But this is what I believe. I believe that if we stay sincere in our heart in the place of struggle, if we will perpetually repent before the Lord, it is only a matter of time because we're opening ourselves up for the searching light of his countenance. We're opening ourselves, and it's just a matter of time if you keep your heart in that position, in that posture. Um, so righteousness in Matthew 5 is huge. That's pretty much what's being discussed is the issues of the heart. But then second to that, he goes hard after love. He's in, in verse 43, it says, You've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And he goes on, actually, in, in verse 48 to say, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And so he moves, I mean, he touches on the issue. He basically says that it's no longer murder in the New Testament. It's if you have anger in your heart, that that is the place that we need to deal with the issue of the heart. He deals with the issue of um, purity as far as our eyes. And then when he's touching here on the issue of love. And just so you know, in this context here, whenever anybody is preaching and addressing issues of sin, I'm going to be very honest with you. It doesn't mean that we're going after the big, like, five bad, like drugs, alcohol, sex. Like, you know, when we're saying sin, 
we're also we're, we're talking about the issues of anger, unforgiveness, gossip. How about in Proverbs when it talks about the seven abominations? It actually numbers those that sow discord amongst the brethren wow. as those that shed innocent blood. Wow. That's for real. Oh, wow. I mean, how many of you think when you're sowing a little bit of discord that somehow you're numbered with those that shed innocent blood? <clears throat> so when we discuss the issues of sin, we're not necessarily talking about fornication, <coughs> adultery. I mean, all those, those are sin. We're also, the, the definition of sin is those places of the heart that no one sees, that no one knows, but the, even those places that we might consider minor, 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 minor places, but even as it says in Song of Solomon, it's the little foxes that spoil the vine. Yeah. It's those little things that we would so easily in our self-righteous self, excuse, <laughs> you know, I was justified in, in talking bad about that person because they were wrong, or I was justified in, I mean, somehow we think that we're justified in our posture. But when we really begin to say, okay, all searching eyes of God, that if sowing discord amongst the brethren is numbered amongst the seven abominations and equal to that of shedding innocent blood, I have blood on my hands. In any place that we've sowed discord or just even spoken judgment. You know, that's, any of you guys ever read Francis Frangipane? Love Francis Frangipane. I just absolutely love him. And I can remember years ago, I highly recommend his book, Holiness, Truth, and the Presence of God. It is just, it so goes after the pure heart. But he, he, in one chapter, he just discusses the issue of pride. And he's basically talking about, like, any time that you are aligning yourself with the accuser of the brethren and accusing other people, that you're setting yourself up as judge, that somehow you are above and they are beneath in passing judgment. And how many times even, I mean, I notice it sometimes even in conversations, the subtlety sometimes that come through in people's words, they would never outrightly say something mean or degrading, but the undertone of something that is condescending or critical of another person. And you can almost, like, I know for me, I'll actually, like, pray. I'll be like, God, I just shield my heart from judging the other person that they may have referenced. You know, like, whatever that, that undertone. Because it's not like you can go around putting your finger on everything, right? <laughs> like, do you got something in your heart? But you can feel that undertone of whether it's condemnation or judgment toward another individual. But this is where, so righteousness and love, he goes hard after the issue of love. So we're going to take time over the next few weeks to really look at Matthew 5. But just so you understand the value that we hold, that this is our litmus test for our personal development as a people, but also as our community, that our longing is to see those people that are a part of J-Hop or this, this Sunday this Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon reality, that this is our litmus test of saying that this is Christianity 101, this is the constitution for the, the kingdom, and this is what we measure our lives by, is Matthew 5. So we're going to look um, more closely at it. Um, just, just to put a bug in your ear over the next week, I mean, I would encourage you to read over it over this next week. Noah's going to be um, preaching next week, and he's going to be speaking on Matthew 5. But let me just say, for the J-Hop community and who we are as people, um, he starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit. And the, I touched on that, you know, when I first started talking about Matthew 5 with you guys, as far as that place of poverty of heart. 
But this is what I want to say, is I've seen a lot of people kind of enter the prayer world, and they, they've gone through seasons of prayer and fasting. They've really, and I guess I'll say in some degree, have gone hard after God. But then I, what I've watched is there's almost like seasons of disillusionment where either answers to prayer don't happen quite the way that we think that they should. Like revival didn't break out within like a two-year stand in Boston, so does God not hear or answer? You know, that whole... But this is what I want to say, is in, in relationship to Matthew 5, that that place of poverty of spirit, of even being acquainted with that ache in our spirit, of I would encourage all of us to not despise or even reject that. But if we recognize, Jesus says, bless you. If we recognize that's a gift. If you're living with an ache in your spirit for more of God, if you're really living with an ache because you recognize that you need more of him, and I, in my own life, I call it kind of a groan for his glory. I'm, I'm a pretty discontent person. I am. I'm, I'm largely, I mean, I have a happy heart. Ask my husband. I mean, I'm pretty, like, even keel. Nothing can really get to me. I stay pretty, uh, um, it's kind of my role in our house. <laughs> but my, my innermost being in the place of prayer, I live with a constant discontentment. But I'm going to say this. It doesn't affect my mood because I know that it's from God and I know that it's a gift. I've oftentimes sat in the place of prayer, and I've actually said to God, if I ever lose this groan for your glory, I know that I'm dead. I would rather live with the acquaintance of my poverty of spirit, of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and know that my spirit is alive and it's the hand of God upon me, stirring and awakening hunger, than somehow quench it. Or sometimes, and I'm going to say this to you, you guys have an option before you every single day. You could totally drown that out with more and more shopping, with more and more video games, with more and more entertainment, with more and more socialization. There's ways that we can almost drown that ache and that groan and that cry in our spirit. But it's to those that recognize... It's to those that recognize that it's a gift and that it's a blessing from God that instead of despising it, that you rejoice and you embrace it. But that's just my encouragement to you. We're gonna, like I said, we're gonna discuss Matthew five in a lot more depth and detail. Um, that, okay, so Matthew five, um, constitution of the kingdom. Second, the primary identity and function of the church is to be a house of prayer. It's prophesied in Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. It, this is actually where the first prophecy of Isaiah, where it says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. But then again, you'll see in Matthew 21, 13. Get this. Jehob Boston wasn't just a cool idea to start a house of prayer. If you understand that in every, in every generation, there is a specific reality that is released in that generation as it pertains, I mean, to many things, technology, science, all of that, but specifically to Christianity. If you understood that years and years ago, that now the reality that we understand that we can pray a simple prayer and from one simple prayer we're saved. That was not their understanding in the 1800s. They did not believe, they didn't, they didn't even have that reality or that understanding. It had, they hadn't even perceived that you could say a prayer and ask Jesus into your heart and you'd be saved. I mean, that's common knowledge. We all get that. That's how we do Christianity now, right? 
But in those days, they believed that honestly, you had to like tarry in prayer. I mean, they believed that it was like a process. You would ask somebody if they had been weeping and crying and repenting before God after a week, you'd say, are you saved yet? And they would say, I don't know. I'm not sure. I think I'm like close to getting there, but they almost believed that there had to be like a complete purging of you. I mean, uh, for those of you that have studied and read it, it's crazy and it's intense. I mean, ultimately what it was is there was a reality birth in a generation of the understanding of the power of the blood. That's why we understand that when we call on the name of Jesus, ask for the forgiveness of sins, plead the blood of Jesus, that in a moment it's done. But see, in their generation, they honestly believed that they almost, in a sense, had to work for it. They had to labor and toil and, and cry for, you know, two weeks. And then they even really weren't sure if they were saved. And instead of understanding the power of the blood and the grace of God. So what we have to understand is that was a new reality that was released to them. Then generations later came the understanding of healing. Like, get it? They didn't even understand that there was modern-day healing. There was realities that were being restored to the church. So here we are, 2011, we step into it, and they're just kind of like commonplace things that we take for granted. Like, of course, you say the sinner's prayer, and the power of the blood of Jesus, it cleanses you. You know, we get it. But that took generations for that reality to be birthed. And this is what I want to say. House of prayer might be like an anomaly and an oddity or even kind of a rare thing that you're hearing now. But mark my words, 10 years from now, it will be the reality and the understanding of the church is that we do not function outside of the place of prayer. That Jesus defined his church. He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. That it's the primary function, it's the primary identity of the church is to operate from the place of prayer. And I guarantee that even like we discussed earlier, some of the things that are plaguing modern Christianity, I guarantee many of those things go back to that very root issue that we're not functioning from the place of prayer first and foremost. And I'm just going to throw some passages of scripture out to you guys. Um, most of you have, if you've been raised in church culture, there's lots of songs that we sing that we, like, we know the chorus and we know the tune, but we never actually went back to the book of Malachi or the book of Isaiah and realized that the entire chapter was prophesying that in the end times, that global worship and prayer, that the house of prayer reality would be the reality upon the earth. Like, so we, we, how many of you when you were little, I, I mean, I was raised church girl. Like, I, so I know all the choruses. Um, but you guys remember from the rising of the sun till it's going down, the name of the Lord shall be praised. <laughs> Crazy! From the rising of the sun till it's going down, the name of the Lord shall be praised. It wasn't just in theory, it was in reality. From the rising of the sun till it's going down, he will be praised continually. If you look in the prophecy of Malachi 1.11, it's saying there will be a continual song of worship that will arise. And it's saying that there will be incense, which is the prayers of the saints, from the rising of the sun to it's going down. And it's not just one geographical location. It's not in Thailand. It's not in another country. It says, in every place, incense will be offered to my name. And you know the best part? It says, then the name of the Lord will be made great. That it comes from the place of worship and prayer. It comes when that reality is birthed upon the earth that the corporate bride 
not just in America, but globally, that their identity is a house of prayer, when they step into that, it says, my name will be made great in all of the earth. So basically, he's saying when there's right order and function, the way that I destined, ordained it, the biblical blueprint, all the way back to Solomon, all the way back actually to Moses when he erected the tabernacle. I mean, it's from the beginning of time. He's saying that when that reality is instituted and placed in the earth, then my name will be made great. I mean, it's an extraordinary promise. In Isaiah chapter 24, 16, from the ends of the earth, we'll hear this song, Glory to the Righteous One. It's crazy to me when I go through the book of Isaiah, and the promise is like, from the ends of the earth, or from all corners of the earth, I will be feared and reverenced and adored. I mean, that is not our reality right now, folks. <laughs> but when you read those promises in Isaiah, they're literal promises, number one. But number two, they're all in conjunction when it speaks about worship and prayer of incense arising in those places. That, that is when his name will be made known in the nations of the earth. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10, sing to the Lord a new song and his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants of them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice, the, village, the villages that Kadar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing. Let them shout from the tops of the mountains. Just so you know, I mean, basically what he's doing is he's covering the whole spanse of the globe. Wilderness and cities and coastlands and villages. I mean, there's nothing that is untouched. He's going through an exhaustive list of all of these geographical locations. And then he's saying, let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord shall go forth. You have to understand, it's as a result of all of these places giving glory. And and he specifically uses the word sing, that they're singing a new song. That the Lord will go forth like a mighty man of war and that he should stir, stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall say and cry aloud. He shall prevail against all of his enemies. And it's directly linked to this place of all of these places joining in song, glory to the righteous one, that we'll see him prevail against all of his enemies. And then just so we can move along quickly through this point of house of prayer, um, all of you are familiar with Matthew 6.10, the Lord's Prayer. And specifically when we pray the Lord's Prayer, when we pray your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Have you ever wondered, on earth as it is in heaven, what exactly is the reality of that? Well, take a look at Revelations 4. Really good picture of heaven. Probably one of the clearest pictures of heaven that we have. I mean, we, Revelations 4, you're in the throne room. You get to see what's going on day and night. And it's literally saying that they're all falling prostrate before him, crying, holy, holy, holy. And it's saying that the seraphim and the cherubim, as they're joining with the song of heaven, isn't it crazy that whenever you get these pictures into heaven, that there's a continual song of worship? And even in Revelations 4, where it talks about the incense, the prayers of the saints that are arising before the throne of God, that is the picture. When we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that in worship, in, in, on earth, that there would be continual worship, continual adoration, and the incense of the saints that would arise to the throne. 
those are just a few passages of scripture. And also, for those of you that haven't really settled, studied in depth um, the biblical accounts of night and day prayer, I mean, just so you know, it's not like a new reality that 12 years ago IHOP did the first 24-7. Throughout biblical history, six times in the Bible, night and day prayer was instituted. And the craziest thing is if you really look closely when they instituted night and day prayer, basically what would happen was there would be a national solemn assembly. The, whoever was leading the solemn assembly would basically say, we've, we've erred, we've strayed from God, let's repent, let's do three days, morning, fasting, slack cloth. And then literally what they would say is from the solemn assembly. See, in America, we do it a little different. We do a one-day solemn assembly. We all do a 40-day fast. We go really hard, really intense. We cleanse. We're, we're hard after God. And then that day after the solemn assembly, everybody goes back to life as usual, back to your TV, back to your entertainment, back to your video. Like Almost like, okay, we cleanse, we purge. Now I get to call for my 40-day fast and just back to chill mode. But in Bible times, <laughs> the six times that night and day prayer was instituted, they literally basically said, okay, we've just recovenanted with God. We're not going back to business as usual. Let's reinstitute night and day prayer because that's how it was always intended to be. Mm-hmm. And then they, those leaders would reinstitute and call their people back to the rebuild. Either some of them, obviously Nehemiah, they rebuilt the temple. There was times of the rebuilding. Sometimes it was just back to the Davidic order. Uh, we're called to priests before the Lord. That is our primary calling. So we've strayed from him. Now let's return. And six times in biblical history, night and day worship and prayer was reinstituted. And then for anybody that would like it, I have a printout of for beyond uh, biblical times present day history all throughout the globe the communities of prayer of people that instituted night and day prayer and this is what i want to say if you look biblically the times that they reinstituted night and day prayer there literally came a shifting to their entire nation their economics were blessed and their wars were won i mean if you look at the blessing and the favor of god that came upon them during those seasons of time, it's kind of like what we were talking about in the beginning. As far as we want the blessing of God, but we don't want to come the way of covenant or the way that he calls us. And what we see in biblical history is that when they ordered and aligned their lives the way that God ordained, there came a byproduct of blessing. That no enemy could prevail against them. That every area of their life was prosperous, which is crazy. I mean, it's just totally crazy. You do things this way and look what happens. Um... Um, Let me just see Okay, so two So number one is Constitution of the Kingdom Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 Number two is our primary identity Is to function as the house of prayer I can hear my son back there Singing Number three is missional community (laughs) It's kind of, that's a broad statement Missional community Um, But it is one of our values, and even in the broad sense, it's one of our values. Um, In a very general sense, Matthew 28, 19 is, Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And also another, this is kind of the context for missional community, is Micah 6, 8. To do ju- this, this is the command of the Lord, to do justly, yeah. to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. Yeah. So this is what I want to say to all of us in this room. Matthew 28, 19, go ye therefore, and Micah 6, 8, do justly, love mercy. 
those weren't commands or commissions to a specific group of people, like the compassion people or the missions organization or the, that was the charge and the command and the commission to the people of God. Is to go ye therefore. So unless the Lord tells you specifically otherwise that like you're exempt from it, we have to assume that that's to all of us. Yeah. To do justly. And so two things. Number one, the geographical location that you are presently in. This is like another session. If you guys really want to know revival history and world, and world missions history, crazy. Like you're on the well, number one, for revival history, but for world missions. The first, the town that we, um, well, town next door, it seems a code, but where Daryl and I live, it's, it's where the first missionaries were actually commissioned, Adonai and Jetson and Hazel Time. And they, they basically their charge, they sailed from the Salem Wharf. So if any of you guys have ever read that they sailed from Salem, they did go from Salem, Massachusetts. But the actual board for foreign missions was formed in Bradford, Massachusetts. The actual commissioning of the first missionaries ever sent overseas. But they literally took upon themselves that when Governor Winthrop dedicated this area, that it would be a city set upon a hill and a light to all peoples. They took it upon themselves that we were called to be a city set upon a hill and a light to all people. He actually called it that uh, Massachusetts would be the stepping stone for the gospel to go to the nations of the earth. And so ultimately when we say missional community, we don't believe that that mission or that intent and that purpose was for that day and time. We believe that that was the dream and the heart of God and that once again, the Lord is going to raise up those. And from Boston, Massachusetts, that truly it would fulfill the calling of light and glory to the nations of the earth. And that it would be a stepping stone for the gospel to the nations. So, I mean, we could go into a lot more detail, but to do justly the issue of justice and the issue of mercy. As far as, so when we say missional community, yes, there will be the outgrowth of um, missions organizations, there'll be missions bases, there'll be internships, there'll be all the formal ways of instituting that that will be the outgrowth of J-Hop Boston, yes and amen. But what that means to you as an individual, because you might be in this city only for a year. You might be here studying. But when we say missional community, you have to understand that every single person that comes through these doors we don't view it as me or the J-Hop staff that somehow God's called us to do ministry. We view it as every single individual. Is Abram singing at the top he of his is. lungs? Oh, he my is. son. <laughs> every single person, the Lord wants to use you as salt and light. This is so loud. <laughs> and he wants to use you as salt and light. Amen. That he wants to use you, whether it be your school or whether it be the Lord might give you a vision to do something with orphans. There's some area, there's something that he has uniquely fashioned you for. And we're not saying that it even has to be in the area of justice and mercy. But, I mean, that's just one clearly delineated out of Micah is justice and mercy. But it could be something in your sphere of where you work. You might work in government. You might work in law. You might work in finance. But the understanding that you guys don't come to a corporate body that I'm ordained as a pastor, so I do the preaching, and I'll get a vision, and you'll do it. No, you come together, and God has called you and destined and ordained you, and we want to rally as a community to see those places of go ye therefore 
to see you empowered and strengthened and resourced and envisioned and encouraged in those places. Um, So missional community, um, let me just see. I also just want to touch on when when we discuss missional community, it's all of those things that I talked about in a formal sense. But also in Matthew 23, 11, um, is where Jesus says, He who is the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, but whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. serve. Um, The understanding that wherever we are, whether it's our workplace, whether it's here at the J-Hot base, whether it's even amongst our family, that the highest calling is really that of servanthood of seeing how we can be a blessing and that we can serve one another, which really just leads me to the next, our actual final um, core value, which is covenantal community and the understanding of relationship. Hold on one second. Um, I'm actually going to turn to Philippians 2. Philippians 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to, robbery to be equal with God, but humbled himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to to the point of death, even death on the cross. And just to set before us the model of Jesus, where it says that he made himself a bondservant, of no reputation that that he came as a servant. Um, This kind of ties in um, missional community and covenantal community. That in... And really even ties in Matthew 5, where we talked about what is struck very hard is the issue of love and honoring one another. That as a community of people, this place of covenantal community, that might be a new term for some of you. And just so you know, it's not like covenant is in, we're all going to like slit our little finger and do a blood covenant. <laughs> Did you guys ever have anybody when you were little, like one of your friends, be like, let's be blood sisters. And I'm like, keep your blood to yourself. <laughs> um, so we're not talking in a weird way, covenant community, but this is really how I define it. Number one, when we talked about Matthew 5, as far as not coming even to take communion, if you know that your brother has ought in your heart, the place of violently fighting yeah. for unity and love. Of us honoring, preferring, lay, even laying down our lives to one another, that it's not about, even as I had just read out of um, Philippians, that it's those that humble themselves that Christ will exalt, that not seeking to exalt ourselves, but even if we live our lives seeking to exalt others, like obviously Jesus, I get that, but even meaning of looking for a platform of success, 
of looking for ways that other people can be the one to either be promoted or have an opportunity, that that is the place of preferring other people. But when I say covenantal community, I mean that posture of love and of being in one accord, of covering one another, caring for one another, that someone in in the community can come to you, even confessing sin, and that you will pray for them, that you'll even labor for them in the place of prayer without judgment, without condemnation. But even beyond that, this is what I want to say, is the community that God is bringing together, I believe what creates covenant community is when you're bound together for a common purpose. And and in simplicity, if you kind of kind of go, okay, if we're bound together for a common purpose, what is that? In, in its simplest form, I believe the community that God is bringing together and gathering together at this point in time at JHOP, it's number one, to contend for the inbreak of God's kingdom in our generation. But second to that, specifically in our geographical location. And this is what I want to say to you. I understand some of you might not be able to say, oh, I'm going to commit to laboring with you guys for, you know, for Daryl and I, it's kind of until Jesus ever speaks something different because we're kind of laying down our lives here. Um, so it's not so much the length of commitment or time of commitment. It's saying if you feel like the passion of your heart is to see the inbreak of God's kingdom in our generation and specifically what he desires to do in Boston, I believe that that is the common bond, the common purpose of what he's drawing together. And I believe that if that is our common bond and purpose, that Matthew 5, that that place of even going after righteousness and love, that we do it with a happy heart and we do it with joy in our spirit because we're, we're longing and groaning for something greater, something beyond a nice fellowship where we can all have coffee and donuts. Something beyond, and this is what I want to say. When I started with Matthew 5, sharing with you guys, um, just to even put it this simply, is that to build a large church is not a difficult thing. And this is why I want to say this to you. Every single day in America, people build businesses. They build corporations. They build large institutions. I mean, there is a certain science to dealing with people There's a certain science to building organizations that you can easily do apart from the presence of God. Because, and I'll just be honest, I've sat in all the church planting, Daryl and I planted another work before this. I've sat and I've even heard, you know, it's like gangs. You know, with gangs, everybody wants to feel apart. So if you do X, Y, Z, and if you, you know, make them feel like, I mean, there's, there's very, very practical. Like the human heart is looking for certain things. And it's very even easy to manipulate a service or a ministry and organization for the purpose of building something large. But you know, how many of you guys know Yang Yi Cho? Do you guys know Yang Yi Cho? He's from Seoul, Korea. Biggest church in the world. Like, ridiculous. It's crazy. He doesn't let anybody stand in his pulpit and preach unless they pray eight hours a day. Like, no, for real. Because I have a friend that's preached there, and like they asked him to, and da da da. But literally, the like what they had to sit down, and it was how many hours a day do you pray? And we do not allow anybody. Huge church, but I will say, Prayer Mountain. They've been doing twenty four seven prayer, like before any of us ever thought of it, dreamt of it. They've been doing twenty four seven prayer. But I say this to say, he came to America. He kind of did a tour of like all the big cool churches that we have, all the mega works, all the things that in America we go, wow, that's cool, that's thriving, that's growing. And so they sat down at the end of his tour and they said, now after seeing all of our American churches, what do you think? Like, what are your thoughts? And what do you, have you heard what he said? Have you heard this? 
frightening. He looked at them very soberly and he said, I'm amazed. And they said, you're amazed. And he said, I'm amazed what the American church can do without the Holy Spirit. Wow. And that's what he basically went on to say. He said, you guys are experts in building businesses and enterprises. And he said, but I have not seen any of the activity of the Holy Spirit that we see in Seoul, Korea. Frightening. Huh? But like I said, you know, when we talked about Matthew 5, and even I had read the quote from Mike Bickle to you guys, that that is our litmus test. That if that is what we're wrestling for, is the purity and the integrity of walking out the word of God. And what I want to even say to you, in that place, that, that's a wrestle. That's, a, that's not a comfortable place to be. As much as I said I love conviction and I love that groaning for his glory, and, and if I'm ever without that, I know that I'm dead, like I'm spiritually dead and you need to get the defibrillators and revive me. But beyond that, it is an uncomfortable place. Your flesh does not like that place of recognizing your poverty of spirit. Your flesh does not like the challenge of looking, like, like James says, that it's like a mirror. We come and we look into the word of God. Our flesh does not like that when we recognize that there's an area that we're out of line or that we need to change or that we're... But the crazy thing is, is that as we're gathering together, and even as Daryl and I were discussing kind of what are the core values, and even for the first week, the understanding that we do not have a grand ambition to build a mega work, we have a grand ambition to see authenticity, a genuine community that is wrestling, wrestling for the purity of the gospel. So in the place of relationship with one another, how we honor, how we prefer, all the way down, like I said, and I'll just recap really quickly. Number one, Matthew 5, the constitution of the kingdom. It's the constitution of the church. That that is how, that is our litmus test and what we order and even the measuring line for our life as a ministry, as a family, as individuals. Number two, the reality of house of prayer. That that is the identity and the primary function of the church. Number three, we're a missional community. We are not a healthy people if it stays within what we can do for one another. How I can bless you, how you can bless me, and we can just be the big bless me club. But it's, it's the missional community is the understanding that we are the representation of Christ to the community, to the region, to the nations, and that wherever you are, the Lord wants to use you as a faithful witness. That it's not looking to another person to be the person standing up here, but when we gather together, it's a body of believers, and that it's a missional community, and seeing from the place of prayer the outgrowth of ministry, the outgrowth of the works of the kingdom, of evangelism, and then lastly, covenantal community of us being bound together for common purpose in Philippians 2, of honoring that one another. But we want to take communion. Actually, can you pull that out, Tony? I kind of do a lot of scripture yet, yeah? but um, I would encourage you to read Matthew 5 over this past, the sixth week.
Jesus, you are Christ, Son of the living God. And Jesus responded to Peter and it said, No flesh and blood has revealed this to you, but it was revealed by the Spirit of God. And upon this rock, the revelation of him as Christ, that he would build the church. And Lou actually spoke like almost all weekend about that, of praying for the revelation of Christ, the Son of God. And this is even really what I want us to do as we take communion. Is when when Jesus said, When you take communion, take it in remembrance of me. And that us gathering together, even before we take communion, I want us even just to take a, a, a second, even to pray that as, as um, Peter had a revelation of Jesus as Christ, revelation of the Son of the living God, that the Lord would even wound us and mark us with a greater revelation of Jesus, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know, it's amazing because revel, the revelation of Jesus in our lives, it changes everything. overwhelming of circumstances. You can have the most devastating of circumstances. You can have the most challenging of circumstances, the most discouraging of circumstances. But there's something with the revelation of Christ that it brings our whole life into order and into alignment. So I just want us to take a minute. Father, we just honor the words of Jesus that even as he said that upon this rock I will build my church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Lord, we ask you that even as Peter had revelation, God, we ask you for the spirit of revelation, Father, upon us as people. You are Christ, Son of the living God. Lord, we ask for that reality in our innermost being, in our innermost man. Lord, to the very depths of our soul, God, even to the very depths of our identity. Lord, how we order and structure our lives. Lord, our priorities. That you are Christ, Son of the living God. Lord, that that would be so deeply rooted and grounded in our lives. Lord, that all that we are, that all that we speak, that all that we do, Lord, that all that we see, that our perceptions, our understanding, even our emotions would be aligned according to that reality. That you are Christ, Son of the living God. Jesus, we say we want to see you rightly. We want to see you rightly, Jesus. So even right now, we ask for anointing upon our spiritual eyes. And our spirit man. Spirit of revelation that we might see you rightly. Word. 